Coming up on today's show, the situation in BC is mind-boggling, just catastrophic, but we're seeing more of these severe weather events, so what do we need to do to make sure they aren't quite so devastating? Our Prime Minister is in Washington for meetings with Joe Biden and the President of Mexico, the Three Amigos Summit, and uh, a lot of people saying, you know, the new position in Ottawa when it comes to oil and gas and the environment seems vaguely familiar. So it's been a six months of absolutely catastrophic natural events in British Columbia. Of course, we had the fires over the summer, and uh, now we have the flooding in the winter. Well, not even the winter yet, but um, and uh, it seems these severe, severe events are happening more and more often, and I think that's to be expected. Um, so what do we do? W- what is the situation? Let's get some insight on where we stand and, and how we can protect ourselves with Dr. Brent Ward, who is an earth sciences professor and co-director for the Centre for Natural Hazard Studies at Simon Fraser University. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me, Shay. Now, I guess, we, I mean, flooding is, is, is part of life in, in the Fraser Valley. This isn't completely unique, although this is very, very different, right? I mean, this is not your typical flood that you would see in this part of the country. I, no, it's not. I mean, usually when we get a big flood in the Fraser Valley, it's from the Fraser River, and it happens in the spring associated with snowmelt. So, so this is unusual in, in that we had this intense rainstorm and melted a bunch of snow that was there, and these smaller drainages are flooding. The Fraser is fairly high, but it's nothing like, uh, you know, a big Fraser flood. Um, when we see this one, obviously the season is different, all kinds of things. So these extreme events, uh, I know that a lot of the people, experts are telling us, well, this is just sort of the pattern that we're in now. We can expect more of this. But what caused this particular event? Because typically it's snowshed, right? That's typically what causes flooding in the valley? Uh, well, again, it, it varies as to what drainage it is. So, um, you know, some of the smaller drainages like the Nooksack and the, um, and the Co- well, Coquihalla is kind of borderline, but the, those are ones that can be driven by these big, you know, atmospheric rivers that right. we get. But you're right, uh, further inland, you know, where we get lots of snow in the winter, then those floods are largely driven by what we call the freshet, the spring melt of that snow. Um, you know, already people on the text line are telling me, oh, this happened before in 1920. There have been floods before. Where does this one rank? Do we even know yet in terms of how bad this is? Yeah, well, it, it's probably, I mean, in terms of the area affected around Abbotsford, it, it's probably the flood of record, you know, okay. so um, in terms of, of high uh, water levels. Uh, for the uh, the Coquihalla River, which is the one that took out, you know, Highway 5, that one is probably at least a one-in-a-hundred-year event. Um, and so, you know, some of the other drainages were not even sure because the drainage, uh, you know, the, the, the gauges were taken out by the flood. So we will have to estimate what it was later. Um, and we expect to see more events like this. I mean, what kind of Obviously, this is going to be a wake-up call in terms of transportation corridors, all these sorts of things. A lot of people saying, why are you building on a floodplain to begin with? We're going to have to change the way we do things, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the the floodplain issue has always been a legacy here in Canada. I mean, the rivers have always been important for transportation and, you know, you know, everything. And so, you know, we have a tendency to live too close and we have structures to try and protect the buildings but you know a lot of times they're not big enough right and with climate change we're seeing an increase in in the magnitude of these floods and so it's very very hard i think there's going to have to be tough decisions made in some areas about moving you know getting rid of some houses and being able to move the dikes 
further back from the edge of the channel. You know, as you probably noticed when you go for walks along rivers, there's always a dike right beside the channel. That doesn't allow the water to go anywhere. Right. And then eventually it overtops that dike. Um, in, in terms of infrastructure, how do we change yeah. that? I mean, these are major transportation yeah. corridors. How can you protect those? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, in terms of landslides, which which was a lot of the issue, you know, along some of the routes, is, uh, you know, if we identify where landslides are prone, we can put in structures to try and protect that infrastructure, but it's very expensive. And, you know, you've seen pictures of British Columbia. We've got lots of steep mountains here. So there are a lot of areas that are prone to these debris flows, and that's what was blocking the highway. Um, Otherwise, we need to make the structures more resilient because we had a lot of, uh, you know, kind of where the river you know, what we call lateral bank erosion into the side and just took out roads. So we need to be better at constructing those fill slopes so that they're more resilient to the floodwaters that we're going to get. Did we kind of get caught napping here? Because like you say, these slides and these flooding issues, uh, certainly not to this magnitude, but they've always been issues in this Mm -hmm. part of the country. Were we sort of complacent in recognizing the threat that we were under? A little bit. I mean, you know, you got to remember it's, you know, we've got this, like I said, this legacy of, of where we built things, either highways that were built in the 60s, so the, 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 the areas to pass the water underneath it are a little too small, and these floodplain issues. So certainly any new development, these things are taken into consideration, and people are also trying to estimate how things are going to change in the future. So present development's going okay, but we have to go back and change things, and that's always hard. It costs a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of resources, and people don't like change. No, exactly. And, uh, you know, and and especially when you can look back and say, well, it's been fine for 100 years. What's the problem, right? Well, this is the problem. Yeah, well, it hasn't been fine for 100 years. I mean, you know, if you want a local example, look at Calgary, right? I mean, it was identified that, you know, there was houses in the floodplain back in the 70s, and they could have made, you know, planning decisions then, and they didn't. And so all that development down in the floodplain, and your big flood, that was only a one-in-70-year event, right? So Mm -hmm. it wasn't even, you know, what we planned for here in B.C. Here in B.C., we planned for a one-in-200-year event. So, like I say, there's this legacy of, of land use decisions that is coming back to bite us now, it's very expensive to change. When we take a look at this flooding situation and the landslides that, that, like you say, really caused a lot of problems with the highways, I know in California they say, you know, that that fire and then flood cycle, they sort of feed into each other because that vegetation is really important in preventing landslides and things like that. So is there a bit of that at play here too? Yeah, I, you know, I haven't been out to see the landslides yeah. yet. I'm actually hoping to go out tomorrow. But I, I've heard that some of them did originate in burned areas. And it is a factor um, because you're right. When you remove all that vegetation, you know, the vegetation can help slow down the water. And it's the intensity of, the, of how fast the, the, the water gets into the soil that can trigger the landslides. And we've also, when you burn that organic layer at the top, that a reduces infiltration and it also creates these organic compounds that are driven down into the soil they precipitate and then uh it makes the uh the um the soil uh impervious to water 
And so the water can't infiltrate at all, and it flows off, and then it can trigger landslides uh, because, again, the concentration of water on a steeper slope. Exactly, yeah. Great insight, Doctor. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. That's Dr. Brent Ward, an earth sciences professor and co-director of the Center for Natural Hazard Studies at Simon Fraser University. And yeah, I think all of these things fit into it. And I think, you know, we can sit here and we can talk about the cause, right? You know, you're going to have people that say this is, we're going to see more of these events because of climate change, and that upsets a lot of you. And then you start talking about, well, why would you build on a floodplain anyway? Well, humanity has always done that. I think every city that I know of, certainly Edmonton and Calgary, both have neighborhoods that are on floodplains, and they flood. Um, New Orleans is built below sea level. It floods. It, 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 sure, that's part of it, absolutely. Also, the cycle of, you know, a lot of you saying, well, quit clear-cutting the forest. That's what's causing the problems. Yeah, that's probably part of it in some areas. Um, and then, of course, we had the fires this summer that erased a lot of the vegetation in that area. And as you heard from the doctor, that can contribute to landslides. So regardless of how we got here, I think we need to start taking a look at what we're going to do to make sure we don't end up here again in the future. And like he said, that may mean um, recognizing that some of the practices that we put in place, you know, 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago, no longer work. You know, you can't build on that floodplain or that highway that you put through that particular area is too vulnerable given the conditions that we're living in today. And we may have to change some things. This, I mean, if you want to look at it in a certain way, could be seen as an opportunity to start some of that change because there's going to have to be a tremendous amount of rebuilding done here. And it's going to cost a truckload of money. So Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in Washington, D.C. today. Um, to meet with, well, they call it the Three Amigos meeting. It is the leaders of Canada, the United States, and Mexico getting together for an annual summit. And it happened quite regularly up until 2016, and then um, they didn't happen. Donald Trump didn't want to hold them, so they were paused. They've resumed. This is the first time in five years. What's on the agenda? What are they talking about? Well, they have some key issues that they want to focus on, and our Prime Minister has a list that he wants to bring up. So let's get some insight onto the Three Amigos Summit, what it is, what happens, and how it works. We're going to chat with Dr. Donald Abelson, who is Director of the Brian Mulroney Institute of Government, Stephen K. Hudson Chair in Canada-U.S. Relations, and a professor in the Department of Political Science at St. Francis Xavier University. Doctor, thank you for your time this morning. appreciate you joining us. Oh, my pleasure to be with you, Shay. So this is the first so-called Three Amigos Summit in five years, as we know they were paused for a while there. So um, does that put added importance on getting things back on track with these three countries? Well, I think any time you have an opportunity, or at least any time Canada has an opportunity uh, to have an audience in the United States, in Washington, D.C., both with the White House and with the uh, people at the U.S. Capitol, it's important. It's These are incredibly, uh, you know, partisan times, very toxic times in the United States. So it's important for the Prime Minister to you know, really hit the reset button on the Canada-U.S. relationship, also obviously including discussions uh, with the Mexican president. Um, but it's important to take advantage of those opportunities. As you pointed out, Prime Minister Trudeau has a, a number of uh, items on his agenda, and he's you know, looking for a captive audience. I think he will have that. How much of an impact he has down the road, we'll have to see. 
but it, it, it's a very useful and valuable opportunity for the prime minister to pursue and to really, you know, strengthen uh, this long and enduring relationship, which he which he referred to yesterday in comments made at the Woodrow Wilson Center uh, in Washington. He he has a number of things on his list, as we agree. Uh, you know, saying he wants to push Canada's supply of critical minerals. He wants right. to talk about the supply chain. Um, it, it seems to me, in a lot of ways, what the prime minister is talking about trying to do, specifically with Joe Biden primarily, is to sort of reestablish Canada as a reliable and trustworthy and go-to partner, which I think we're not seeing the same way we were even just four or five years ago. Do I have that wrong? No, no, you're you're absolutely right. And it's a, it's a phrase that he used repeatedly yesterday afternoon about Canada being a reliable partner, Canada having access to 13 of the world's, you know, critical minerals, Canada's willingness to engage in various cooperative ventures with the United States and with Mexico. So I think what the Prime Minister is trying to do is really to dangle the carrot to say, you know, listen, we're here. We have been very supportive. Uh, We've tried to fight COVID together. We're certainly concerned about disruption to supply chains. We're concerned about a proposed tax credit that could be in this massive bill going through the U.S. Congress, uh, a tax credit uh, for uh, manufacturers of electric vehicles, which could have implications for Canadian workers. Uh, We certainly have concerns about uh, fighting uh, climate change, all these different things. But what what the prime minister has to understand is, uh, you know, what is happening in the United States today is very, very different than what happened, you know, 10 years ago. We don't even have to talk about what happened during the Trump years but even before, he, he's operating in a very different environment. I mean, if we had time, we could talk about the relationship between other prime ministers and presidents and how they were able to strengthen that relationship. Joe Biden, as we know, has his hands full. He's trying to get through his legislative agenda. And as important as Canada is to Biden and to the United States, uh, you know, are we their number one priority? No, we're not. We have to make sure our voices are heard that we pursue the appropriate channels in D.C. to make sure that we get our points across. And that seems to be, I mean, and like you say, that that relationship has changed, and it's primarily because the United States is more focused on USA first, right? And when they when right. they make economic decisions, they're thinking of America first, which I think is completely and totally understandable, but in a lot of ways it, it's having an impact on us, and we don't seem, like you say, getting our voices heard. That hasn't been happening. Well, that, that that's absolutely right, and, and you can't blame the United States. Nope. I mean, we're, we're two sovereign countries, uh, and at times our interests will confer, converge, at other times they won't. Joe Biden's primary responsibility is just to pursue what is in the interest of the United States, not Canada. That's Justin Trudeau's responsibility. And so what the two of them have to do, uh, in addition, obviously, to uh, President uh, Lopez Obrador of Mexico, is to find common ground. I think the prime minister will be able to do that. How much of an impact he's going to have down the road, we're going to have to wait and see. But we can't lose sight of the fact that the United States is a very different country now. It's a country that has become increasingly divided, highly fragmented politically, very toxic. And so you're dealing with a president who is struggling. He's been struggling really since day one to get through his legislative agenda. Of course, the prime minister is aware of that, but that makes it even more important uh, for him to make sure that on these critical issues that we've already outlined, uh, that Canada's position is known and that we remain vigilant in terms of 
not only establishing, but strengthening our ties to key stakeholders in the United States to try and advance our interests. Does he have some own some work of his own to do when he goes down there talking about collaboration and, right. you know, supply chains and uh, yeah. climate change and all these sorts of things. There are some areas where Canada's collaboration with the United States is being called into question, specifically with COVID rules and how we're different from everybody else. Uh, you can right. talk about our, our handling of China. I mean, if he wants to preach collaboration to the United States, does he need to do a better job collaborating with the United States? He absolutely does. And, uh, you know, yesterday when he was giving remarks to the the Wilson Center, he talked about Canada falling behind on our relations with Indigenous communities. He talked about, you know, some of the other challenges. He's got to step up to the plate, too. So if he is preaching closer cooperation with the United States, he needs to lead by example. And there are plenty of things that we could focus on that would highlight you know, how in, in, in this important relationship, Canada has fallen behind. So it's not just about pointing fingers at the United States or saying, you've got to do more, we've got to do more, and we need to, to, to set an example. And what was interesting is when, he, uh, when Trudeau kept on referring to this close and long and enduring relationship, the one word that he didn't use, which we've often seen in the, spa- in the past, is special relationship. Mm-hmm. We talked about that during, you know, the Mulroney-Reagan years, the Mulroney-Bush years, uh, the special relationship that Jean Chrétien had with, with Bill Clinton. That word was not used. And I think people who look at the Canada-U.S. relationship, certainly over the last number of years, are very aware of that. We take for granted that it's special, but in what sense does it give us you know, higher standing or greater access or privilege than other countries? In some ways, yes. In other ways, no. So our prime minister has to be politically astute. He has to be very savvy about what buttons to push and what priorities to assign to different bilateral and, indeed, with the summit, trilateral issues. Now, we're, of course, talking about Trudeau and Biden, and uh, the leaders grab the headlines, but there are massive delegations involved here. I mean, there's huge numbers of people. How do these summits work? What actually happens, and how is any progress made? Is it just meeting after meeting after meeting? Well, there are there are obviously several meetings, but the real work generally takes place, you know, behind the scenes in working groups. Uh, you know, people representing different federal government departments and federal agencies uh, in the United States and in Mexico. Um, so, so much of the work, honestly, is handed over to to civil servants, to bureaucrats, to policy uh, analysts who really work on on the fine details of any agreements that might emerge. Uh, we we heard from Christia Freeland uh, yesterday, mm-hmm. and, and she knows you know what goes into, for instance. Uh, you know, formulating a new trade pact with the USMCA. So that work doesn't tend to be, you know, attract attention, but that's really where it, it, it takes place. So it's not surprising that leaders capture the headlines. They, after all, represent sovereign countries. But it's the policy professionals. That what, it's what happens behind the scenes, the kind of leverage that is exercised in order to try and find common ground and move some of these issues forward. That's where the real work takes place. So if we're keeping score at home or we want to issue a report card at the end of the summit, what would be seen as a victory for Canada? What can we, do we need to come away with something tangible that he can hold up and say, hey, this is what we accomplished? Yeah, I'm not sure he's going to be able to do that uh, in the short term because after all, each one of these issues is complex. 
and they're going to play out in different ways and over different time frames. So I think what he, he will what, what Trudeau will say after the summit is he, he found it very useful that the uh, Biden administration was certainly open to some of the suggestions that Canada was making, and the Mexican president, I suspect, will will, will say similar things. But we're we're going to have to wait and see how it pans out because you can't claim victory unless you have something that's tangible. Is it important to have this avenue of access? There is no doubt. You know, Canada needs the United States in order to, uh, you know, uh, further its position, strengthen its position on the world stage, and obviously in in bilateral and trilateral relations. But policy victories do not happen overnight. It's a lot of slogging. There's a lot of exchanges. And so it might not be for for months uh, or even years before we really see what the outcome is. Will the prime minister be able to come out tomorrow and say, oh, you know, great, great victory. Uh, The Biden administration has decided to withdraw a tax tax incentive for manufacturers of electric vehicles. No, he's not going to be able to say that. Mm -hmm. But what he is likely going to say is we had an open and frank discussion. Biden administration is well aware of what our concerns are, and we feel confident that we will be able to continue to work on these policy files down the road. I suspect that's what's going to come out of this. Just get some progress started. Um, Doctor, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. You take care. You too. That is Dr. Donald Abelson, who, as I said, is director of the Brian Mulroney Institute of Government, Stephen K. Hudson Chair in Canada-U.S. Relations, and a professor at the Department of Political Science at St. Francis Xavier University. So our Prime Minister at the summit in Washington, along with a huge delegation, Three Amigos Summit, fresh off the heels of COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland. We talked about that quite a bit. We're going to talk about it again. Of course, that was the big climate change summit that took place in Scotland uh, with people from all over the world. It was huge, a great big event. And the big proclamation by the Canadian government was um, a cap on emissions by oil and gas producers in Canada. And we know how that went over with a lot of people here in Alberta, especially with the consideration that it was, it seemed to be really focused on the oil and gas sector, which a lot of Albertans felt unfairly targeted, and you can understand why. So it brought back some bad memories for a lot of people in this province. So let's get some idea of why uh, a lot of people really were alarmed with what came out of COP26. We're going to chat now with um, Lydia Milgen, who is a professor of political science at the University of Windsor and a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Uh, Lydia, thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. My pleasure, Shane. You know, this declaration following COP26, the one thing that struck me, uh, it came from the Environment Minister, who made great pains to point out that this emission cap would target oil and gas, and only oil and gas, and a lot of other sectors that uh, uh, produce just as much pollution, transportation specifically, almost as much as oil and gas, would not be considered in this. It really seemed to be focused on oil and gas. Yeah, and I mean, it's certainly not surprising if you know the <laughs> the background story of of, of the new environment, yeah. climate change minister Jubo. I mean, he's he's a former Greenpeace activist. I'm sure your your listeners probably seen those um, photos of him being arrested after trying, you know, some of the stunts he did yes. with Greenpeace. But actually, his more 
um, problematic comments are the fact that he's publicly stated when he was with Equitaire that, and, and he was really a, a driving force behind stopping the Energy East project. Is that he, his, his life's mission is to keep oil and gas from Canada in the ground, um, and so that is, I think, I think that's problematic, and it certainly shows that this this cap that's specifically targeting. Uh, oil and gas is in, certainly in line with his thinking. Now, you've uh, recently come up with a piece that uh, says, you know, there's a lot of parallels between what we are seeing right now and the National Energy Program. And I'm hesitant to even utter those words in Alberta all these years <laughs> later because that's go time. That's Those are fighting words in this part of the country. Uh, but I think you're right. I think a lot of people are saying this seems very familiar to us. It's familiar in in some certainly the optics. I mean, certainly the the, the focus on the oil and gas sector uh, and the fact that the person leading it is a minister from Quebec. I mean, back in the day for the National Energy Program, it was Mark Lalonde who was also a Quebec minister, um, and obviously that didn't go over very well in Alberta. Jabot is the same same kind of thing. There are differences though, and I think they're quite dramatic. I think that I think the net result is going to be the same devastation for the oil and gas sector. But but there are some differences. I mean, as, as most Albertans will remember, the point of the NEP program was to nationalize um, the, the oil sector because of, uh, because of concerns about supply, especially with OPEC. And they thought that if they nationalized and lowered the price, that somehow that would make um, oil more available for Canadians. But they, they, and they thought that we would be conserving oil and gas because actually at the time they thought that they could have a pipeline. So a little bit different. But, you know, the fact is because they nationalized and they got Petro-Canada, it just dried up investment and, and the ability to even have a pipeline. That's why we didn't get that pipeline right. moving towards Quebec is because the price of oil went down so so much and we lost out in terms of our discount rate. So there's a lot of similarities um, and, and I guess what's what's frustrating for me, even looking at it from, from Alberta's, uh, sorry, from an Ontario perspective, is that you know they can make all the proclamations they want. The fact remains, this country runs on oil and gas <laughs> and, and if we aren't getting it from Alberta, if, if they say, fine, we're never going to extract it from the from the ground that's not going to do anything to affect climate change or affect co2 emissions because that all it just means is that we're going to now import it from other countries some of them might be through pipes so the americans don't really want to do that anymore so it's going to be through train or through tankers or through trucks which increases your co2 you still need to get it somehow into canada and get us moving so that's my my biggest concern about this uh, latest proposal yeah i think you know it seems to me and you know like you say there's a, there's a recognition that you know the oil and gas industry is being targeted here but if you take a look at the oil and gas producers they themselves are saying yeah, okay we understand there's a situation here and we're on i mean they had 2050 in mind before the government did i don't understand why you know there seems to be and like you you say the reality on the ground is we still need the oil and gas and we all understand that we all understand that okay we're going to have a transitional economy but it seems to be these diametrically opposed extremist viewpoints that get all the attention and neither of them can go anywhere. Yeah, and I guess my other frustration is that it, it, the, the Liberals under Justin Trudeau feel that they have found a solution to the problem. You know, initially their, their solution was a price on, they called it price on pollution, mm. so that basically it's a carbon tax, fine. It has made no, <laughs> no appreciable difference in our emissions. I mean, just making, making people pay more at the pubs just makes them angry, but it doesn't stop us from driving because people still have to go places and they still are driving cars. That's just the nature of that beast. 
But as as for the the whole other aspect of it, I mean, they, they've decided that a cap on production is, is the way to reduce CO two emissions, and completely ignoring the fact that the private sector has found other ways to reduce their yes. emissions on their own. So it's one thing, you know. So I don't have a problem with 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 government saying, okay, this is the level of pollution or the level of CO two or whatever it is that we're willing to ex- accept. Now it's up to you to find the solution that best fits your sector or your industry. And it can be a whole host of different policy tools at their disposal. The fact that they just go straight cap, hard cap, and no flexibility in that is always what's so frustrating. And it means that they're not really... They don't really want to engage, at least from my perspective. It doesn't seem that they want to engage. They're they're sort of decided from afar that this is the only way to go about doing things, and they'll just they'll let you know sectors they basically let them hang hang to dry. And what's amazing is that this is the same government that said they will always protect Canadian jobs. Um, I just don't see that happening in this sector. There is no protection for Canadian jobs. Yeah, and I think you you make a good point, and I think a lot of people in Alberta have been talking about this with the appointment of Gibault, uh specifically, sort of saying that okay, Ottawa's stance on this has changed. They're done, um, you know, playing footsie with the oil and gas industry. They're coming down hard. Do you anticipate we'll see more like this? I mean, putting him into that environment minister portfolio caused a lot of concern in Alberta, and I think it sent a message. Yeah, no, it, I think it is concern. I mean, there's a concern that he's a, an extreme environmentalist. He's not a pragmatic, you know, there's, there's environmentalists who are pragmatic and who are willing to compromise and, and really understand the pros and cons and do the cost benefit. He is not that person. And we saw a hint of this when he was the heritage minister. I mean, he is the guy, the architect of the the Internet bill that wanted to, you know, really censor the Internet and make sure people sort of towed the line there on how we spoke online. And he was not he, he, he was not pragmatic at all, and he would not compromise. He would not budge. And I'm really curious to see what they're going to do on that file now that they have a new minister. But it just seems that this is a, a, an individual who's very firm in his beliefs, and it's his way or the highway. And that, I think, is problematic. And it should be very much pause, give a lot of people pause uh, in this sector because it doesn't look like he's going to be compromising. And the fact that Wilkinson, who's the previous environment minister is now the minister of um, natural resources is also concerning because that could impact not just oil and gas but other resource extraction and and that really seems to me the main agenda of the current liberal government that they somehow think that we can still have a thriving economy and not do our core business which has been historically resource extraction yeah it's it's it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's hard to wrap your head around in a lot of ways, but I appreciate you giving us your insight. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Shane. Nice talking to you. Yeah, you too. That is Lydia Miljan, who's a professor of political science at the University of Windsor and a senior fellow of the Fraser Institute. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.